Well, we are in really the final week of a series on the Psalms of Ascents. That is the Psalms numbered 120 through 134 in your Bibles. Though next week we are going to do an additional psalm, just not a psalm of ascents. And this week uh, we're looking at Psalm 127, a a very well-known psalm that gets quoted a lot uh, by Christians. And the psalm was written by Solomon, and it is a meditation on the fundamental activities of being human. Psalm 127, let me read it for us. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Well, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be a good time of meditating on your word, that these these words would... uh, penetrate into our minds, of course, but into our hearts and our bodies, that we might be shaped as the people of Psalm 1, as the people who want to walk in your ways and love your ways and delight in your ways so that we might be used by you like a, a tree planted by a stream, a living tree, giving fruit to those who come by. Lord, may we be used for your goodness and your glory and your kingdom moving forward. And we pray this in Jesus' name through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Uh, In 1984, a seventh grader named Andy Smith wrote to then-President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, with a request. Here's what he wrote. Today, my mother declared my bedroom a disaster area. I would like to request federal funds to hire a crew to clean up my room. Signed, Andy. Reagan actually replied with the following letter. He says... Dear Andy, I am sorry to be so late in answering your letter, but as you know, I've been in China and found your letter here upon my return. Your application for disaster relief has been duly noted, but I must point out one technical problem. The authority declaring the disaster is supposed to make the request, in this case, your mother. However, setting that aside, I'll have to point out that the larger problem of available funds, this has been a year of disasters, 539 hurricanes as of May 4th, and Several more since, numerous floods, forest fires, drought in Texas, and a number of earthquakes. What I'm getting at is that funds are dangerously low. May I make a suggestion? This administration, believing that government has done many things that could better be done by volunteers at the local level, has sponsored a private sector initiative program calling upon people to practice volunteerism in the solving of a number of local problems. Your situation appears to be a natural. I'm sure your mother was fully justified in proclaiming your room a disaster. Therefore, you are in an excellent position to launch another volunteer program to go along with the more than 3,000 already underway in our nation. Congratulations. Give my best regards to your mother. Sincerely, Ronald Reagan. If you don't like that letter, I can't help you, right? (laughs) I mean, I love that letter as it emphasizes the value of hard work and responsibility and initiative. And these are... All character traits we should applaud and and teach to our children, but 
they don't exist in a vacuum. Hard work, responsibility, and initiative are always interpreted. They are always carried out in light of something else. So, for example, St. Ignatius of Loyola famously said, uh, pray as if everything depended on God and work as if everything depended on you. So pray to God, petitioning him with all of our wants and needs, and then go work hard. And hopefully you know, you'll be productive and take care of your family and your neighbors. And you know, in a certain sense, Ignatius appeals to conservative American sensibilities, like what we hear in Reagan's letter. The problem is that he's just wrong. Nowhere will you find in Scripture that the encouragement to work is if everything depended on us. I mean, that, that sort of thinking is actually a product of the fall into sin. You know, after the fall, the idea of working as if it all depends on you or really the idol of productivity is what we take to be normal and obvious. No, you, you find the opposite in Scripture. Live as if everything depends on God. Live as if everything depends on God because guess what? It does. So those character traits we rightly applaud, initiative and responsibility, working hard, they're always in service to something else. And to be a Christian, they must be done in service, really in relationship to God. So if we take Ignatius seriously, and I don't think we should, in one area of our life, prayer, we, we seek God as if our success and our well-being uh, depends on him. But in every other area of life, God has little to nothing to do because it all depends on us. This is an example of, of the secular versus sacred distinction, as if God is only useful, maybe only present in the sacred things, you know, things like prayer or Sunday worship, but everywhere else. You know, the other 110 to 111 waking hours of the week, he is not actively working because really we believe he's absent. And the difference between living as if it all depends on God versus living as if it all depends on us is the difference between a typical conservative American versus what the Bible describes as a disciple of Christ. It's easy to be a conservative. It's hard to be a disciple. And in this Psalm, Solomon, well, he meditates on three incredibly important aspects of human existence that we all want to think about and that, that affect every single one of us. And it goes all the way back to the creation of humanity and it bears on our existence right now. It's our worship that is our communion in life with God, our productivity and our security, and then our children. So let's start with that first thing. He, he writes there, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So when Solomon mentions the house, the immediate context, the immediate thing he's referring to is the temple. Unless God builds the temple, there is no temple. There really is no worship whatsoever. And before the fall, now this was obvious because God created the heavens and the earth, and in the midst of Eden, he planted a garden sanctuary, and it's where he put humans. This was the first temple where God and humanity dwell together in communion and table fellowship. That's why the restoration of God's people always, it always involves worship and table fellowship with God. It's why at every stage of the Bible, from the tabernacle, really from the first pages of Genesis, all the way 
to Exodus 25, to the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21, life with God always involves worship and table fellowship. Always. Every time. Worship is the non-negotiable foundation of our life with God, and he sets the terms and parameters for it. He sets the table. Now, after the fall, humanity still desires uh, still desires to worship. I mean, we were created for it, so we, we still, too, desire this. But instead of worshiping the true God on his terms, humanity either worships on their terms or worships other spiritual beings parading as gods or worships idols or themselves or all of the above. So for Solomon, when he says the house, this literally has to do with the building of the temple, and that's not a small thing. Remember, David, in his zeal and love for God, he wanted to build the temple and had set aside all kinds of materials for that project, but God refused him. He said, no, you're not doing that. The reason for this, despite David's good desire, and it was good, was that David, as a man covered in the blood of his enemies, as a man of war, was not the man to do this. God required a man of peace and thus set apart Solomon whose name means peace, to do the work. I mean, Solomon's name is Shlomo, which is uh, shalom. It's that wholehearted, total peace that the Hebrew Bible looks forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. That's his name. So this, of course, actually looks forward to Christ, You know, the ultimate expression of God's shalom, God's peace, the ultimate man of peace, who instead of destroying his enemies, he lays down his life for them and himself becomes the temple of God. So as Solomon well knew, unless God does the work, unless he superintended over it all, despite his best intentions and having all the materials and his desires to do it, it was not a temple of the living God. When God builds his house, it is glorious, like like Eden and and causes humans then to flourish. When humans do it in their own strength and wisdom or zeal, well, it looks like Babel, or it looks like the golden calf of Exodus 32. And to apply that to you know, our own 21st century context, you know, it does not matter how hard the pastor works, or how wonderful the music is, or how beautiful the building is, or you know, how gifted our Sunday school teachers are or how vibrant our attendance is, you know, unless God builds his church, unless he sets the terms for it all, and by the way, lots of people, lots of people view things like attendance and big budgets and lots of programs and lots of busyness and all that stuff as an indication of God building his church, and sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Unless God builds his church, Unless he's the one doing it, it will not be built at all. No, actually, it's worse. Unless God builds his church, we will have nothing more than a tower of Babel in his name. And the beauty of the Gospels is that Jesus promises that not only will he build his church, the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. And we just sang about that with the church's one foundation. Why? Because he's the one who built it. He's the one who built it, not us. Well, Solomon then extends God's work uh, to the city of Jerusalem itself. Unless God protects the city, there is nothing we can do to protect ourselves. We can have the most advanced military in the world, the best P-51 
peace treaties, the best alliances, the best border security. But if God is it with you, it won't matter. All it is is an illusion of safety. This is exactly what is in view in Psalm 23 when David says, even though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, and even in the midst of his enemies, God blesses him with communion and table fellowship and rest. And yet, though God has promised us life, redemption, restoration, and resurrection, like every generation of Christians before us, we struggle to believe this. We just do. You know, Christians maybe, especially now, believe as if the future of the church in America depends on who is in elected office or what legal protections are put in place for us by those politicians. And I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but you know, Israel had no such protections from the enemies that surrounded her. You know, all Israel had was God's promises and a history of his fulfilling those promises, and she did not believe. You know, we are not surrounded by enemies, not like David was, so much as we are surrounded by cultural critics who, frankly, are sometimes justified in some of their criticism of how Christians in this country have behaved. You know, even so, we tend to build up walls or go looking for protection wherever we can find it, hoping to weather the storms of unbelieving outsiders because in practice, like Israel, at the foot of Mount Sinai, waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain, we believe that maybe God is absent, and so we want to take things into our own hands. We believe it is up to us to build the kingdom here on earth. We believe that as we go through the shadow of death, he's, he's way off in the distance, distracted with something else. But no, let me, let me assure you, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus is very much ruling right now at the right hand of the Father. And his kingdom is on the move. It's bigger than it has ever been because he's the one building it. Well, let's keep going. Solomon writes, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This is the second aspect we want to talk about and meditate on in this passage, and it's about work. Work is a very important part of our humanity. In fact, work is built into our purpose and why God made us. We are literally created to be his servants, every human. Privileged image bearers, made to bear his image in the work of stewarding and ruling over what God has made. And it's a great honor among all of the creatures he made. So we should work hard, making the most of what we've been given, not being lazy. But for many, their work ethic is not really a work ethic at all so much as it is the worship of productivity. It is driven by fear, a fear that that drives people to rise early and go to bed late, constantly worried about whether or not they will make it, as if our financial earning power is what we really depend on. All this despite the data that shows that we live in the richest country and the richest point of human history. So you know, just to put this in perspective, according to Dr. Marian Tupi, who is a researcher at the Cato Institute, an economist, by trade, I think, uh, in the early 1900s, so think about the time of President Theodore Roosevelt, the world economic output, even accounting for inflation, was roughly $3 trillion. World economic output, $3 trillion. I can't even put that many zeros, I don't know, right? 
In 2018, it was 121 trillion. So if the percentage of growth continues at the same pace, by 2100, it will be 600 trillion globally, or six times more than it is right now. So, you know, obviously since 9-11, things have been difficult. And, and if you were listening to that Reagan letter, how many hurricanes did they have by May 4th, 1984? Like 500 something? They had earthquakes and fire. It sounds just like now, right? Since 9-11, it's obviously been difficult. But even so, on average, we are living in the richest point of human history in the richest country the world has ever known. We are so rich that for the first time in history, obesity instead of starvation is a problem among the poor because the food we eat is both economically cheap and extremely calorie dense. And this is happening among the poor all over the world too. And still we work and worry as if scarcity is a constant threat like we are scratch farmers living in the 1100s under some, you know, ducal fiefdom or something. And it's not just, you know, adults who are, are gripped by the God of productivity. It's teenagers who most likely because of their parents have deep anxiety over test scores and college admissions and so-called success. I've actually seen kindergartners with test anxiety. Kindergartners, test anxiety desperate to perform well for their parents. And for what? You know, to put this in biblical perspective, the Sabbath does not exist to give you a recharge so you can get back at it on Monday, so that you can be productive. It's not a day to catch up on what you failed to do earlier in the week or as the prep day to get going for tomorrow. No, what it is, is a foil. It is one important way God uses to fight against the idolatry of productivity that most of us have. I mean, Solomon uses that term, anxious toil, and it, it alludes to the curses of the ground uh, with Adam in Genesis chapter three. So it's not just that, that humanity's work is much harder or painful or frustrating, it is. It's more so that we, we will turn that work into a false God. And you can work yourself as hard as you want to go. As hard as you want to go. Pursue the best test scores, the best jump shot, the best financial portfolio, or, or whatever. But in the end, as Solomon brings home in Ecclesiastes, you're still going to die. And those hopes and dreams, all that anxious toil that you thought was going to really make you, guess what? It's going to die with you. I mean, we desperately try to make our work stand in for our humanity in total. You know, I am what I do. Or worse, I am what I earn in dollar amounts. And it's so degrading. I mean, did you ever stop to think about how much work, just on a daily basis that we do, is not compensated in money? And how important that work actually is? I mean, nobody pays me to cook. Nobody pays me to clean. I mean, when you relegate the value of your work to what shows up in a paycheck, you essentially reject what the book of Proverbs teaches about our humanity and have instead given into the idolatry of productivity. I mean, nobody on their deathbed regrets not having had better grades. Nobody. Nobody regrets having not made a dollar more. And if they did, how sad. I mean, how pathetic would that be? You know, so for example, personally, you know, once... Once I made the decision in college to move away from being a professional musician to, to pursuing seminary and then graduate school, 
I started dreaming of being a professor. And I imagined, you know, I would be teaching at, you know, whatever university, enjoying a, a comfortable life in the mind and the respect of my colleagues as I produced books and articles and stood before large auditoriums of students who mostly liked me. Uh, you know, and I was like, like Ralphie, you know, in a Christmas story, imagining what he would do with his Red Ryder BB gun, except instead I, I'm standing and here I am talking and there's, you know, all that stuff. And then, now it's not a bad thing to want to be a professor, but I desired it because I thought it would justify my existence. It would prove finally that I'm smart. It would make me something in the world and people would in turn, they'd listen to me and they would take me seriously. But in reality, I was ignorant to how the whole road to becoming a professor actually works. And, and here's a hat tip. It's extremely rare for a person to go to the schools I went to and teach in anything other than a small Christian college or a seminary, which is great. I would have been happy to do that even at the, the end of that process. But there are thousands of people dreaming the same dream, and there's only a few jobs to go around. But God knew how he wanted to use me, against my own will, really, and, and so directed me to institutions that grew my mind and my heart and prepared me to be a churchman instead. Now, I can say that I'm grateful that he did that. I know I am far happier, far more useful than I would be elsewhere. Even so, getting rejected for job after job after job and in turn, teaching as an adjunct in the religion department at a middling college I cared nothing about, showed me just how much I had been in slavery to a false god in Jesus' name. You know, if we take the Bible seriously, our work, as important as it is, cannot give us the value and security and happiness we so desperately desire. And for some, it's not till they actually have the thing they thought would give them the happiness that they've always wanted, that they finally see, like Solomon, no, it's vapor. You know, it seems like it's solid, but you put your hand right through it. And even if you work very hard, there are no guarantees you will actually be productive or successful, let alone that you will be able to keep what you have built. And actually, you cannot. You cannot keep what you've built. By definition, it will go to someone else once you die. And all of it, you know, every aspect of our lives, including our work, depends on the Lord. So, you know, we are more than retirees or stay-at-home moms or bankers or software engineers or physicians or salesmen or teachers or pastors or whatever. I mean, these things are wonderful. They are crucial. But they are not the foundation of our lives. God is that foundation. Our worth is not in what we do or what we own or our achievement. Our worth is that we are the children of the living God. But without God, we will never be anything more than our jobs or our genders or our ethnicities or our bank accounts or our homes or whatever. That's why Americans define themselves by those things and they, they continue to do so. And they're so dissatisfied. They're so angry because of it. But listen to this. In verse two, Solomon says that God gives rest to his beloved. Now, this is a play on words between the word rest, Jedidiah, 
and God's personal name. This is the name he gave to Solomon, which is also Jedidiah, which the slight word usage makes it my beloved. So God gives rest to his beloved son, Solomon. Solomon the wise, Solomon the builder, Solomon who tried to do it all in his own strength and ran off the rails so badly. God offers his beloved prodigal boy rest. You know, like the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, God wanted to wrap his arms around his boy and protect him and tell him to quit killing himself. Quit killing yourself in all these efforts. You know, to those whom God loves, he gives rest, not just from labor, but from the curse of sin that drives us to believe it all depends on us. Again, we need only think of the Sabbath. You know, Sabbath Sabbath is freedom from the curse. It's liberation from the false God of productivity and self-defined worship. Just like the Lord's Supper, what we're doing now, what you have today is the promise of the future life to come. It's trusting that when God says, you are mine, you are my beloved sons and daughters, that we really are his children and we can rest in that. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's not figurative language. That's freedom from the curse of Adam. It means we don't have to be defined by the curse of anxious toil anymore of worshiping God on our own terms anymore. This is why Solomon says what he does in Ecclesiastes chapter two. He says, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Huh. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This isn't a call to hedonism or gluttony or laziness. It's a call to worship. Everything that we have, our food, our shelter, our lives, our future earning potential, even our happiness and joy, they do not come from our efforts or our hard work. We believe they do, but they don't. They are gifts from God. I mean, just consider, how can you possibly, how can you possibly make yourself rich enough that you would never have another worry? It's always one more dollar. It's always one more thing. How can you bring yourself actual real joy as opposed to the cheap self-medicated pleasure? You know, as Jesus makes clear, God has not given us a yoke of slavery. He has given us a yoke of rest. You know, one master demands you give it all even as it all depends on you. And the other says he has given it all and your life now depends on him. Well, this leads to the final thing Solomon mentions and how he thinks we should value children and how we should go about raising them. Solomon writes these words, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So Solomon tells us that children are a heritage 
the fruit of the womb a reward. And really what he has in mind is that children really should think of them as an inheritance. They are gifts of wealth freely bestowed upon a couple, but more so a community by God. And this is almost exactly the opposite of how modern culture thinks about children. Usually when we think of an inheritance, we think of it in terms of you know, money or property or real estate. And if we happen to inherit such things, well, great. Well, we think we're blessed. And, and of course, there's truth in that. Those are nice things to get. But, but Solomon doesn't mention any of that in this psalm. No, the gift of children is the gift of humanity continuing, in particular, the growth of God's kingdom. It's why I'm grateful for the noise of little ones in worship. It is a reminder that this, com- this, this community has the gift of life in the future, that we are not dying out, that there are some who will replace us, and that's good. You see, the value of children is not that they are playthings that are supposed to enrich our lives with precious moments. You know, we dare not make the mistake that so many Americans do of equating children to pets, you know, as if God, as if a dog, excuse me, and, and a child are, are two different kinds of babies, you know, one with fur and one without. No. You get the picture in verse five of a proud father confronting his enemies at the city gate with his sons and daughters flanking him. Like arrows, children are intended to grow to maturity and be sent out into the world as gifts. It's why Deuteronomy 6 takes the role of parents training their children in the ways of the Lord so seriously, both in what they verbally teach them, like what we're doing now, but also in what they model for them. You see, children, they don't remain as children forever. In fact, childhood is really fast. God intends them to stand on their own, to have their own homes, and to eventually replace us. And all of that in communion with him. You know, so the goal is not to to train up kids who are financially successful or or athletically superior or cultural influencers or, or whatever America thinks is good right now. It's to train up people who know that God loves them and walks in light of him. That's it. It's to... Love a future community that we may never see ourselves. So it's not just to love this church right now, it's to love this church 20 years from now, or 50 years from now, or 100 years from now. Think of it this way. We will be celebrating our 202nd anniversary in May. The people 200 years ago, in some way or another, loved us well and saw beyond themselves and their own times. And here we are. God is faithful through them. We want to be that kind of people. And if your vision is anything other than that, you, know, you, you need to go read Psalm 1 again and go read Proverbs 1 again. This is why the young adults class I'm teaching, our 7th through 10th grade class, that's what we're working through. You know, the future of the church, the future of the community at large is in its children. And if we're serious about the future of Christianity in this country, then we need to be serious about raising our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And it begins at home. And parents, I'm telling you, there's data to prove this. No youth pastor, no youth program, no retreats, no Sunday school class can compete with you and your influence. It's not even close. 
I mean, think about it. Youth pastors are often young and inexperienced and hardly know, they're hardly more mature than the kids they're supposed to minister to. I mean, why churches, I've never understood this, why churches hire young people to minister to young people is one of the most foolish things I will never understand. It's like hiring, hiring a 12-year-old to teach kindergarten. Who in their right mind would do that? You know, even so, youth pastors get, let's just assume they're good, Youth pastors at most get two hours a week with kids. When I was a youth pastor, that's all I got, two hours. I might get a meeting with a kid here and there. Sunday school is 45 minutes at best. Worship is an hour. All these things are useful, especially worship. And they do make an impact. But when it comes to the raising of children and the fear and admonition of the Lord, these repeat with how important parents are in the home. And God has intentionally made it this way. Again, just go read Deuteronomy 6. Just go read it. That's a command to parents, not pastors. It's a command to parents, not Sunday school teachers, not speakers at a youth retreat. We need to take the raising of our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord seriously. I mean, that's, that's the biblical vision for them, recognizing that they are gifts and you give away gifts that they will not remain as children. And what we should want for them more than anything else is for them to commune with God and worship and live out their calling as image bearers in light of him wherever he puts them and for them to become parents and leaders themselves. Now, having said all that, and it's heavy, we won't do this perfectly. I stand before you as a completely flawed parent. But we look to our God and put our trust in him that he is faithful with our children, just as he has been to us. That's the promise he made to Abraham. This promise is for you and your offspring. And through our sometimes feeble, sometimes pathetic, sometimes sinful and misguided efforts, he will raise them up in himself for the sake of his kingdom as gifts for the life of the world. That's our hope. That's what we've got to be intentionally about. Well, let me pray for us because we need God to be with us in all of this. Heavenly Father, it is scandalous how gracious you are to your people. And yet, without it, we're done. I'm so thankful that you are faithful even when we are not, that you continue to work through broken and flawed people. That, Lord, the, the worship we offer sometimes half-hearted, yet you meet with us all the same. That our work is often done for selfish ends, and yet you still bless us through it. And Lord, even with our children, so often we are not good parents. So often we have made mistakes, sometimes bad ones. And yet you are faithful to our children. Lord, you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you because it is you who builds your kingdom and not us. And because of that, we have hope. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.